You are listening to History Man 1781, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes. On today's podcast, we continue our visit at Camden, South Carolina. Located in the Midlands of South Carolina, it is situated on the Great Wagon Road that connected Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Georgia. Camden was the epicenter of the Southern Campaign of the Revolution. Through its history, we hope to catch a glimpse of the national struggle for independence. Join us as we rediscover why freedom reigns. This is History Man 1781 coming to you from the top of the Joseph Kershaw House in historic Camden. Today we're talking to Tom O'Block, U.S. Army Infantry retired, historic Camden's gun captain. He's responsible for the demonstration crew out here at historic Camden. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thank you. So, Tom, we're talking about historic Camden and its role in the American Revolution. So what do you do here? I, um, I am the gun captain for the restored cannons. We have actually f- four working pieces that we use for demonstration and entertainment purposes. Do a lot of educational stuff, fire for ceremonies uh, in regards to the uh, Revolutionary War. A lot of the uh, historical foundations uh, uh, will have us come down and we'll shoot for uh, ceremonies that they have in remembrance of the Revolutionary War. Well, how did you get this job? Well, it started out that um, uh, one of the foundation members, uh, who was also the president of the Camden Battlefield Preserve, Longleaf Pine Preserve, came to our church. He's a member of our church and was telling us that they were looking for volunteers at Historic Camden. We had just moved here and uh, when I retired, and I was very interested in learning more about the Revolutionary War. I hadn't actually come out to the site. And so he gave us a list of all the things that uh, you could do to volunteer, a tour guide, you know, volunteer, cleanup, crew, whatever. One of them was bartender in the tavern, so I checked the block for that. Uh, I had to come to a training session a couple weeks later, or just an introduction thing, and took a tour and said, oh, I could do the tour guide thing. So I, I trained to do the tour guide here at the, on the site, and then uh, also volunteered to learn about the battle so I could be a tour guide and staff ride uh, historian out at the battlefield. And... Um, a few months, and I noticed that while where I was here, that they had cannons. They had three uh, period cannons under a shed. Uh, they were just laying on the ground, basically on blocks. Uh, the carriage was on blocks because the two wheels for the field carriage, uh, the hubs had rotted out. And so I asked, well, you know, you don't come to a museum and not see cannons not mounted properly, especially since I'm a military guy and have, have toured a lot of Civil War battlefields at the professional level with historians and staff rides and you always go and see you know the cannons are always prominently mounted anyway i found out that those cannons those wheels had rotted out about 20 years ago it had actually been the cannons had been one of the cannons had been mounted and one of the barrels had been mounted on a carriage for the bicentennial and so i started to inquire about it and um, took it upon myself to figure out how to get the money how to get the cannon uh, wheels uh, refurbished or rebuilt or new ones made and then uh, figure out how we could get it put back on. So I worked while I was working on that, I became the kind of quasi-cannon guy here at the site. I learned a lot about where those cannon barrels came from or the narratives and started to learn a lot about cannons because I had to learn how to, you know, was the how to get it mounted, where to get wheels made and talk to a bunch of historians. Lo and behold, in February of 2018, 
the South Carolina, South Carolina Battlefield Preservation Trust was going to be given four cannons. The guys down in Yemassee, South Carolina, the guys who actually had these cannons made, they've had Revolutionary War and Civil War cannons made, uh, and they would fire them for ceremonies, but they had just gotten too old to do it. And they were looking for a place that would use them properly for education, entertainment, and demonstrations. Historic Camden fit the bill. Uh, I'd been working on the restoration of these cannons here, was invited to come down with them to pick up the cannons, and did that. And now on the way back, we got to talking about how we need to get cruise trains. So we contacted Eric Nason, who is the commander of the 2nd South Carolina Continental Line. He's a reenactor, and he is um, he's authorized to fire the six-pounder out of the State Museum. So we contacted him. He said, sure, we'll come down and train you. So six of us were standing there, and he, he looked around the group and says, okay, we need a gun captain. Who here has any military experience? Well, I was the only guy that had military experience. So I had 25 years in the infantry, and so I thought that qualified me to be kind of a safe, you know, understand how range operations go. So I became the gun captain. I didn't really want it, but now that I did it, um, next thing to do was after we got trained, trained a trainer so I could train more cannon crews. Next thing was to become historically accurate and get uniforms and clothing and other accoutrements uh, so that we could outfit the crews. And we ended up now, currently we have uh, 14 volunteers. About four of them have purchased all their own uh, uniforms. A lot of them have bought a lot of, lot of their own undergarments because the, the jackets are kind of expensive, but we're getting there. And we've probably done, I think, 48 events since we've had the cannons. So the infantryman turns artilleryman. Well, the, the cannons are three-pounder. They're actually, the, uh, the, the grasshoppers are considered an infantry support weapon. So I say they're akin to infantry mortars of today. I see. They're lightweight, easily portable around the battlefield. And of course, you know, infantry companies have a mortar section that are infantrymen that are allowed to fire indirect fire weapons. So I can make the legacy transition to uh, these small cannons. And we have two mortars. So there I am a mortarman. So I can make that, I can make that uh, work. So the grasshopper cannons that you have, explain for our listeners uh, what exactly those are and, and what it takes to run them. Three-pounder, that's the size of the ball uh, that was used. Um, typically, you know, uh, in a field carriage, the one with the wheels and a trail, um, probably went up to about a 12-pounder is typically what you would see on the battlefield. Obviously, the weight of a 12-pounder, six-pounder, four-pounder, and three varies in size. This, this, the three-pounder, the nice thing about it, especially a brass piece, can get to less than 400 pounds, um, meaning four men could carry it basically like a litter. There We have the, the handles to put it in so we can lift it up and carry it, which meant that here in South Carolina, or actually in the time of the Revolution, they were very popular here in America because they could be lifted up and picked up over fences. Instead of dismantling the fence or having to dis, uh, get the horses off and try to do something, and it meant that you only needed one horse, one mule, one oxen, or one cow. And here in South Carolina, they're very popular because of the size of the small roads and trails. Very few roads. And so they were, you'll find that here in a lot of the battles in South Carolina, three-pounders were used a lot. And so we just happened to have two three-pounders. And uh, from a firing char characteristics, you know, in the terrain of revolutionary times, especially here in the South, small fields, not a lot of open areas, didn't need a lot of range um, to um, engage the enemy with these cannons, and primarily were used at, to fire grape shot and canister, so giant shotgun rounds. Matter of fact, the battle 
at the Battle of Camden, uh, there have been no balls. Of the 18 cannons used that day, there were no cannonballs ever found on the battlefield, only grape shot and canister. So that's a little bit about the cannons. They were just very popular, easy to maneuver, didn't need a lot of uh, horsepower to transport them. Uh, you talked about the, the canister and the grape shot, that sort of thing. Um, how many rounds of ammunition do they have on hand in stockpile? Well, in the there's a ready box on the uh, on the grasshopper, and it would hold up to 24 rounds. Okay. So did they store 10 times that amount, 100 times they, that amount? There, there was, um, if you look at the manuals for at the time or the books, the books about it, they did have a, a caisson or a small two-wheel box that would fit to the end of the cannon, and that 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 would then that would be hitched up to the horse or the mm -hmm. cow or the, the oxen and transported around they probably had uh, uh probably 100 more rounds there Out, the rest would have had to have been in the baggage train okay did they store some at the, at camden itself camden oh yeah Papa? well there was a powder magazine powder here. magazine so how now, much would they it's store interesting there? here we as far as cannons here at historic camden we know that when the british arrived in May, end of May, by October, the chief engineer with Cornwallis's army here had sent a dispatch back to Charleston requesting 18-pound cannons for five redoubts and laborers and craftsmen to help build those redoubts. Uh, we know that in December of 1780 that a spy uh, actually wrote back to General, uh, at the time, Green up in uh, Charlotte that the, the, there were five redoubts. Uh, they were armed with supposedly 23-pounders, but we, that's what was in the dispatch, and uh, that the redoubts had abatis out to the front. They had a ditch. Um, so this was pretty well-armed fortification. Matter of fact, Green never intended to attack because it was too heavily fortified. They captured, they probably brought field cannons with them. Uh, Tarleton, when he went up to Waxhaws, we know that he had two three-pounders with him. Really? With this flank, he never used them during the battle, but he probably could have displayed. Remember, that, that was a pretty open area, I understand, it, even in those days. So when and he was chasing Buford? Or yeah, when he was chasing Buford. He was carrying them with him. Two, three-pounders. I mean, it takes one horse. So. Wow. Or a mule. I did I'm, not realize that. I, I thought that uh, they were doubling up on the horses. They just, were, yeah. They just were. to get there, but they were still pulling the cannon behind them. We were recently at Waxhaws for their ceremony, and uh, I was talking to the historians about it, uh, and they were saying that, you know, they were the ones that mentioned that there were three-pounders there, and then the other one said, well, we're not really sure. Yeah, the problem is getting dispatches written and finding, I mean, even Tarleton's baggage was lost when he left Charleston on his way back to England. You know, uh -huh. his ship was captured. So everything we have is based on probably what Cornwallis got as a dispatch. And really, there's a lot of holes in the actual facts mm -hmm. and figures in a lot of cases. Right. It's just like these three cannons we have here. Nobody, there's stories about how they got here. Right. I have searched the archives. I've searched the history of the bicentennial. And all I can find is there was many money set aside to restore the cannons. So I, I don't know. The supply line back and forth from Charleston, Fort Cornwallis. Let's just, let's just talk about briefly about that. He had a uh, you know, storage or, or stored ammunition here, right? Right. So, in any, like at the Battle of Camden, how much, how much ammunition do we suspect or do we know uh, was expended? And then the historians have done a, I don't know what they call it, where they um, use magnets, you know, uh, they, they search the battlefield. Okay. And they, they find all, they have, they've done, a, a, they have markings where they found, you know, uh, 
musket balls, uh, rifle pieces, buttons. They have all that marked. It's hard to say. You know, the American Army came down from Charlotte with their complete baggage, with probably lots of ammunition. They were on campaign. Cornwallis, they, they, they packed them up with light kit. We know that. They didn't come in full marching order. They didn't have a baggage train. May have only had whatever, you know, the 12, 16 rounds, whatever they had in their uh, cartridge box when they came because they wanted, he wanted to move quick. He wanted to beat, you know, what they thought at the time before they knew that they were facing the full American army up here to move fast because he wanted to get on the other side of the gum swamp. Is it gum swamp? Anyway, he wanted to get on the other side. He didn't want his, uh, he wanted, didn't have to want to fight to get through the swamp to get to the Americans. So anyway, that's all speculation. I don't know how many they had. Right. That, you have to assume based on tactics of the time what they probably carried. Where was the ammunition that the British used? Where was it made? Made? Made. Um, soldiers in those days would roll their own. A lot of times, you know, they would take newspaper, paper. For the grape shot? Oh, for the grape shot, for the cannons? Yeah, for the oh, cannons. The cannons, probably mm-hmm. the, the actual ordnance guys would do it themselves, the, the cannoneers. I mean, they would get uh, soap, the, uh, the cotton bags, the twine, the wax twine. They had plenty of brass uh, bands to uh, make the wooden sable that it would, you know, you put the ball. Anyway, you had, yeah. if you show a drawing, but you put the ball onto a wooden disc. You tape it around with some um, brass uh, wiring and or strips, and then you attach the bag and tie the bag on it. I mean, it's it, it, just like we do now for our demonstration pieces. I mean, we have actual rounds. We don't we use rice instead of gunpowder for demonstration pieces, but it's easy to make. It's easy enough to make. I'm sure they had the technology. Here in Camden, they would have had craftsmen, woodworkers, farriers. They had a blacksmith. So they could probably make all that stuff. Plus, they also had the ammunition magazine that was reinforced when the British were here. Okay. That's all speculation. I, I, I just have to guess that that's probably what they did, based on what I've read. So what would they use? I mean, was it... Now, the, the canister and the... Uh, so, so the canister would have been musket balls. Okay. The uh, grape shot would have been one ounce or uh, one inch balls, bigger balls. Where would they get those from? Oh, they probably... They probably they pro- uh, lead forms. They just melt, you know, just like making bullets. They just take lead, melt it, pour it into molds. Well, there's no lead mines around here. No, they would have, those, that would have been supplies brought in from Charleston. I see. I see. Do you know anything about how, how often the supply trains would come up from Charleston? No, but we know they got attacked a lot by guys like Francis Marion and right, uh, Thomas right. Sumner. Right. Made life difficult here for the British. And um, the Americans brought down how many cannons? From uh, Charles, and this is the first battle of Camden. Right? In the first battle of Camden, they brought down nine guns. How, how do we know that? Say again. How do we know that? Uh, it was written in Gates's report when okay. he left, because he, up until the time he, before he left, uh, his reports were being sent to you know Washington and stuff. So dispatches were going. So he, we know that he left uh, Charlotte with uh, two six pounders, four four pounders, and three three pounders. There is some indication that one of the three-pounders was lost in Wrigley's Mill and crossing the stream. The, the wagon wheel broke off. It was not in the actual battle. We know that all the pieces were brass, according to Cornwallis, because in his dispatch on the victory of Camden, one in the first paragraph, he talks about all the cannons that were captured. In those days, capturing cannons was a very big deal. It meant you were taking the, the, the real firepower away from the enemy. Uh, and the real killer on the battlefield, besides the bayonet, was the cannons. He was shooting canister and grape shot. So, and we know that's what, and he said he captured uh, the eight pieces of artillery, the two six-pounders, four four-pounders, and two three-pounders. 
but we also know that's about exactly what he had. There are, there are some reports and some written records that vary on the type, size and types, but it was all basically the same at the Battle of Camden. Okay, uh, just kind of a little rabbit hole to go down to. Tell, tell, me, tell me about Francisco Peters and what you know about him. Well, only what I've read and seen, you know, uh, reenactments of what he did. So when I saw the first, it was a PBS special they were doing, and they talked about him. And they talked about him at the Battle of Camden, uh, where he saved his commander, and then he ran back and he saw the cannon, uh, and he picked up the cannon barrel and huffed it off the field. I think they said it was a six-pounder. There's no way a man is going to pick up. I mean, I, I know, you know, people get in the heat of the exciting moment. They can pick up cars here, right? But a four-pounder probably weighs about 2,000 pounds. A uh, six-pounder brass probably close to the same or a little more. I suspect that if he was with one of the militia units and he fell back and was retreating down the road to Rugley's Mill, which is where they went, he may have come across the cannon. I remember... Bannister Tarleton, he was chasing them, you know, with cavalry, and the British were after the Americans too, and he probably saw this crew trying to get this cannon out of this creek or whatever it was, and he, it was brass three-pounder because he picked it up, probably 250 pounds, somewhere in that area. That's probably doable. That's my, that, that's my theory, that okay. that's where he saw it, because in the heat of the battle here, I mean, when the British, when the British broke the, the militia line at the Battle of Camden, they easily left two cannons on the battlefield because everybody just ran. And the infant, the, the cannoneers are not going to leave. Are going to leave their guns if there's nobody. They're going to spike them, and go. But of course, at the Battle of Camden, the opening cannonade was directed at the cannon crews, and I can talk a little bit about that. But that's what I know about uh, that one cannon and him picking it up. Well, well, let's go in. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that uh, opening salvo. Well, we know that the Americans placed their six pounders on the road, the Great Wagon Road. So they probably, and so the... So um, there was eight of those. There was, no, there was two six-pounders. Two six-pounders. And they were probably, they're supposedly mounted right down on the, on the wagon road. Now remember, when the, the opening battle started, when the, the night battle started, and the prisoners came back, both sides captured prisoners, both sides realized they'd hit the main force. So the Americans had deployed into their battle line, and so, and then the British did. So the Americans put the two cannons on the great wagon road, and anchored their... The Continentals probably had a couple cannons. What they did with on the militia side is they anchored two cannons between the, the militia units. So there was like right in the militia, right in the middle of the militia line. When the British started coming Why down. Why would they do that? I mean, that just seems like it takes takes away the effect of the cannon if it's, they, if they, it's massing, right in the Massing artillery fires was not a known tactic at that time. It was done. Right. Matter of fact, at the Battle of Monmouth was one of the first times the Americans used mass cannons. I see. And of course, we did that at the Battle of Yorktown. If you look at uh, the books, and like Mueller's uh, Treatise of Artillery, he only dictates, he only gives a page and a half to tactics of cannons. And I have a, a book uh, that was written uh, about artillery in North America, and they talk about by the time, you know, the Napoleonic War started, and Napoleon being, he was the one, it was the French that really wrote some of the first manuals on the employment of artillery and the massing of artillery. He was famous for it. it. It just didn't happen very much. I mean, yes, they would mass artillery for sieges, you know, bring up mortars and stuff and, right. and do that. But on the field of battle, it was to supplement the, uh, uh, the, the rate of fire and to shoot more stuff downrange at greater distance with greater accuracy. 
I mean, a cannon crew can fire about six times to seven times a minute. A well-trained crew, that's faster than a rifleman can load and fire. Mm -hmm. And he's firing in a, you know, a big, even a four-pounder probably shoots about 18 balls of lead at a time. That's a lot of lead going down range and at a greater distance mm -hmm. with greater force. So they were big right. killers on the battlefield. So when you say staggered or, or when you say in between the lines, you're not talking about there's, there'd be there's a one line, line yeah, a cannon, be, and then the next no, line. Yeah, there would be the two-man the two front. Okay. To the left would be a cannon, then a two-man front, and okay. then another so cannon. So it's not behind them. They're, no, they're, it's not, it's, no, they can't fire behind them. In those that's days. right. Oh. Not like they do today. But anyway, <laughs> so, so in the morning, right after when the, sun set, when the, when the moon set at about 5 o'clock, or was it four thirty five o'clock I think it was it got very dark and the night battle had produced a lot of smoke that had drifted over the main battlefield and the and it just kind of hung there it kind of hung there supposedly they said there was a great fog but we know that the British were coming down the road the American the Americans heard the British the clanking and they asked permission to open fire and when they did uh, it started a cannonade the British had cannons in the forefront of their formation and they had other cannons behind, and as the, they formed their battle lines, as their troops came out from a column formation and came at, into a linear fashion to face the Americans, they brought cannons with them. And for a good 20 minutes, there was a cannonade firing back and forth. Nobody could see what the other side was because of this fog, and they talk about that the British cannon, the, the, of the, the, who, the captain of the least the two guns, was pointing his crews at the orange flashes of the American cannons. They were probably with about 200 meters away. And this was a, a old-growth pine forest, is that correct? Yes. And it's, not like, it's not like a big field that they're coming into. No, it's they, a long-leaf pine forest, which meant the trees were a couple hundred, um, 125 years, mature trees. Two men could stand behind a tree for cover. They were huge. The only th underbrush was the grass. Right. Um, and, if, you know, they're working to preserve the battlefield to bring it back to that condition. They're a long way to having it done. But, so it was, there was plenty of fields of fire. And like I said, after the battle, when the archaeologists got out there, they found no cannonballs. Uh, only grape shot and canister was fired that day because they were so close. You sure. know, you get to a point where you're going to shoot a cannonball because it fires farther. Well, you know, you're within 200 meters. You're firing all that shotgun stuff. For our listeners who have not listened to our previous podcast, the results of the first battle of Camden were what? Uh, total annihilation of the American force, pretty much. When you say annihilation, though, you're not talking about everybody died. No, no. Um, I mean, it was the worst defeat by the American Army in South Carolina, or in the Revolutionary War, to be exact. Um, Even above Charleston? Well, that was a capture. That was surrender. That was the worst surrender of American forces in okay. the Revolutionary War. All right. So uh, of, of the about 4,000 troops, half of them, about half of them were militia. They just disintegrated. When they saw the British come out, of the, out, of, out to the point where they could be seen in the fog, and dust and uh, of the battle and they saw the bayonets remember the militia didn't have well some of them did some of them had only gotten the bayonets supposedly the day before but they didn't even wait to fire because the british the, the british must have been within 200 meters or close enough to start volley firing and the a lot of the americans didn't fire at all and they just turned around and ran that exposed the american flank the virginians held for a little while some of the marrow they they try to reinforce with the america the delaware and Amer and the uh, uh marylanders to what they call um, oppose the flank, basically form an L to put a wall up there, but they really didn't get uh, a chance to form very well. And, the, and of course, then the cavalry came in and got behind around them. 
So the Continentals were left to fall back up onto the higher ground where uh, eventually Delcab uh, was shot and, and uh, wounded badly. And because of the terrain, a lot of the American forces uh, were able to move into the swampy area and not be followed by the cavalry and, and escape. I mean, eventually, I think about uh, two-thirds of the Continentals showed up back in, Char in, um, Charles in Charlotte, but the militia had basically fell. There, there are numbers. We don't know the exact numbers, but it was not good. I mean, it was definitely the Americans took a, a higher number of casualties overall, plus captured. So it, you know, from a military parlance, they, you know, it was a complete total disaster for the Americans. So tell me where the American Revolution went from there. Well, that was probably the lowest point. I mean, there was, you know, when you think about it, when the British had tried to take Charleston before and they couldn't, uh, and then they came back in 1780 and tried something different and were able to surround and eventually, I mean, basically Charleston surrendered. But, you know, the, the problem with the British was that they weren't going to pardon people and, and they were a little, a lot more strict with what they were going to do with prisoners and they, they certainly... They certainly didn't win the hearts, the hearts and minds of the did people, not, did they? No, they, they challenged people not to take up arms or they would be hung. There's guys like Huck who was a loyalist, you know, and he went around and beating up and hanging anybody who was a patriot. They, they just didn't do it. And then Ferguson, with his proclamation before the Battle of Kings Mountain, that says, you know, you either join us or you not, or we're going to, you know, we're going to do you bodily harm and all this stuff. I mean, it wasn't good. But, you know, overall, by the time Green got down here and his tactics were different, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't planning to, to win major battles. He was, he was there to wear them down, which he did. But... You know, overall, in, in, a, in the year that the, all the major fighting was on, you know, we, the historians will tell you here in South Carolina, there were more battles, skirmishes, engagements than in any other state. Well, you know, a smart historian from up north is going to tell you, yeah, but they were all small. Yeah, but if you look at the casualty figures of, of um, killed, wounded, and, uh, and captured, it's over one-third of total casualties in the Revolutionary War were incurred here in South Carolina. That does not include the number of people, uh, militia units, or loyalists, or patriots who fought for the cause, whose whose name was never recorded. Right. And I, that's probably the true. That's probably the same for up north too. But and when you look at the, I mean, I, I think New York is probably the only other single state that had it. But when you look at what was going on in 1780, 1781, and and what the British were trying to do to carve out the South to keep it, and they couldn't, and ultimately it led them to, you know, and. Green ultimately forced Cornwallis to expend his supplies and force him not to come back to Camden and get resupplied. So, you know, he had to go to Wilmington and then he decided to go to Yorktown and we know what happened there. Yeah, I think it's important. So why were they fighting? Why were the Patriots fighting? I mean, we, we, we obviously had trade with England, yeah. right? Uh, so It's the whole taxation without representation. You want to be free, not have to pay taxes, have, you know, um, be able to live with uh, and not be subservient to the crown and one man. So that's why they were fighting. I mean, there's, you know, people signed up, all the, all the colonies signed up for the Declaration of Independence and all, everything it stood for. A lot of people were fighting for that. So what does freedom mean to Tom O'Block? Well, that's a good question. Well, it means living in the United States for the, is probably the single simple term, and, but the backing up b behind that is, you know, 25 years in the Army and traveling a good portion of the world. I mean, I've lived in socialist countries, you know, Germany. I've been to, you know, seen how dictators treat their people in Panama. I've been to Indonesia. I've been to communist countries, other socialist countries. 
And, um, you know, I just thankful to live in the United States, you know, and have all the liberties and freedoms that I have, I, I, you know. Okay, so I kind of believe that I believe what the Constitution, the Bill of Rights stands for. I, I want to make my own decisions uh, and not have somebody tell me what I have to do. I want my own money. <laughs> Keep it. I don't want to be paying frivolous taxes because somebody doesn't want to work. I mean, I understand that there's some people that need it, but I don't know. That's kind of all. I want to be able to make my decision, live the life, life I do. And I also want to, you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of without getting political, how do you, you know, make a statement that, you know, uh, I like the liberties I have and I want to keep them. Very good. What do you want people to take away from historic Camden if they come to visit um, here? It is the... Uh, it is the hallmark of the Revolutionary War here in South Carolina. Uh, it's where the center of everything happened. It was because Camden being a major supply point for the British for all their outlying tentacles. You know, if you think of an octopus with its head here in Camden and the tentacles out to all these places like 96 and you know, all these other forts and installations where they were trying to win the hearts and minds of the Americans here, the patriots and the loyalists, and keep them. And this is where it all happened. You know, the Americans tried to take came to Camden twice and fought two battles here. One um, with Gates was a, you know, a utter defeat. Uh, the second one at Hopkirk's Hill, two miles from this location, it was a victory by the British because they chased the Americans off the battlefield, but instead of the Americans running away and not coming back, they only, they stayed and they came back and forced the British to leave two weeks later. So it's kind of like a stalemate, but in those days, the things that constituted victory on a battlefield were the number of cannons that were captured and whether you pushed the opposing army or soldiers off the field of battle. Okay. I call the Second Battle of Camden a draw or a tie because Green stayed here. And so it's important. What, what's, what's happened here at Camden is very important. And it's going to be the head of the Liberty Trail or a big portion of the future development of Liberty Trail, which is to trace all the major uh, historical Revolutionary War events that's a, that's, a, that's a lot of chatter about that right now, the Liberty Trail, especially here and around Camden. Yeah, right. and they want to make the Visitor Center part of the headquarters for that, too, right. when they build that. Right. Well, that's very, very uh, exciting to hear. Thank you for your time, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Right. Thanks.